The Gospel is from St. Matthew, chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Hear the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory, Glory be to you, O Lord. Jesus tells this parable to his disciples. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These people who were hired out last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, said Jesus, the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Lord, this is a hard teaching. Give us wisdom, we pray, to perceive what you would have us learn as we seek again to learn to live the life that you've called us to, the life of the kingdom, where things are not all they seem. Amen. Well, how often do we hear that terrible cry, life is not fair, life is not fair. All of us have at least expressed it in our thoughts, if not spoken it out loud with our voices. It should be fair. There's something in us that says fairness is what should happen when things are at their best. 
And we feel outraged when things aren't quite fair. A simple example, um, when I was in Paris, my, uh, part of my sabbatical for a few days, Sean and I had queued for two and a half hours to get to the front of the queue to go into the Louvre. Because although we'd booked tickets to get in voiding the queue, the Louvre staff had gone on strike and there had been a delay. So we had to wait all this time in the pouring rain. And occasionally you'd get a few people just sort of sauntering in and round and sort of just blending in with the queue near the front. I was really amongst the most outraged of everyone there. And uh, just saying in a quite curt way, uh, the back of the queue actually is, is round that building. Something in me gets riled when there's things happening that aren't fair, even though, and I won't, although this is being recorded, I have to confess my sins. And I did exactly the same in the Wimbledon queue when I was about 15. So, but I still feel guilty about it, and I have to ask God for forgiveness and pushed in in front of everybody. Anyway, that's another story. But this parable is one that appears to be one where there is so much unfairness. Even the landowner is accused of being unfair, even though he has said he would pay what he said, and he did. When you think about it, people who just were there around, perhaps hadn't been uh, given a job, maybe they were the ones who were unemployable, so-called, the people of the 11th hour. They hadn't been snapped up by other people. Maybe they were disabled, maybe they were people who were on the fringes of things, maybe they just weren't able to work well. We don't know. In that society, a lot of people got ignored. But the landowner, you come and work as well. And of course, the people who were there working the whole day were justifiably and understandably outraged, expecting to have more. But Jesus in this parable is not commenting on social justice. He is, this is not a parable about the social justice of his day. In fact, Jesus' parables are very rarely about the issues that they deal with. Jesus' parables are inevitably and invariably about the kingdom of God. And that is what life is like when God is in charge. When life is going God's way, when God's will is being done and God's kingdom comes, as the prayer says. What Jesus is doing is painting a picture in words of how things are like with God. And he sums it up, as he does in the previous um, uh, teaching, earlier in Matthew and again later in Matthew, around the same section. He uses this phrase, which is unforgettable. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Anybody wants to know what the kingdom of God is like, what it's like with God, then that's the summary of the whole thing. <laughs> the last shall be first, the first shall be last. In other words, with God, the world's values are turned upside down and back to front. 
And he's warning his disciples not to view life when God's in control in the same way as they see life when the world's ways are prevalent. The story seems unfair. And I guess the readers would say, yeah, it just doesn't seem to be fair. Life, as we know, is not fair. But the key statement that Jesus tells in this parable is in verse 14, where he, the landowner says through his, um, a person who's giving out the wages, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Now here is the nub of the parable. Jesus is saying one thing, and it's about God, and he's saying God is generous. God is supremely generous because he is a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of outrageous grace, a God of amazing grace. And he shocks people into thinking God isn't like the way normal people deal with each other. And you think of other sort of stories that that sort of teaching comes through on. Any other parable that that is particularly clear in? The shout out a parable you can think of? Where God's amazing grace is seen in a story that we all know? Prodigal son. Good stuff. What about an incident from Jesus' life when that happened? We see his amazing grace, his generosity beyond all human conception. Right at the end of his life, Hmm? The, cross. the cross. But what particular incident on the cross? The thief, yeah. The penitent thief who just turned toward Jesus. You know, sometimes I think what Jesus is looking for in repentance is a simply a, a turning toward him. We go to a huge amount of trouble to say how terribly sorry we are and awful it was and feel guilty and all the rest of it. You know, Jesus, yes, he wants to know our hearts, but if we just turn toward him genuinely, again like that par parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you know, Lord have mercy on me. It's all that Jesus is looking for. And this is what Jesus is trying to say in this parable beyond everything else. Tom Wright, uh, in his commentary on this passage, which I found so helpful in preparing for this evening, says that God does not make contracts, he makes covenants. And if you want to go away with remembering anything more than God is an amazingly generous God of grace, which we sort of knew, but hadn't maybe taken it in as fully as we, we could do, Remember that phrase, God 
does not make contracts, he makes covenants. I just want to say a word about covenants because this is what this parable is about. A contract, of course, is where you try to negotiate a better deal with a person you're forming a contract with, like we did with this building project. We sat down with the architects and with the, uh, the, the, uh, the project manager and we knocked out a contract. We signed it and agreed the terms and tried to make it better for us in the long term. And we got what we paid for. A covenant, on the other hand, is where one party promises everything and asks everything in return. One party promises everything and asks everything in return. And that's the basis of the Old Testament covenants and the New Testament covenants. We haven't got time to go into those in detail, but Jeremiah, in those words from chapter 31, speaks of the fact that God had loved, loves Israel, loves his people with an everlasting love. He calls himself, I was husband to you. And yet his people rebelled against him. They broke that covenant. Because God had said, well, I am completely committed to you, and therefore what your part of the covenant is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's what it's about. You're abandoned to each other. Does that remind you of any other covenant that we witness quite regularly, especially yesterday if you were here in church? The marriage covenant. It's the marriage covenant that promises everything to the other. With my body I honour you. All that I am I give to you. All that I have I share with you. Within the love of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's what the husband says to the wife. Guess what the wife says to the husband? I receive this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body I honour you. All that I am I give to you. All that I have I share with you. Within the love of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I mean, that word all is um, pretty comprehensive, isn't it? It's the lot. <laughs> and that's why with the blessing of the rings, the priest will pray, let these rings be to the man and the woman a symbol of unending love and faithfulness to remind them of the vow and covenant that they have made this day through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is why God's love is a covenant, not a contract. It is total abandonment for us. And the other side is that we, out of thanksgiving and praise to God, abandon ourselves because we can do that. Because, you know, when, when somebody is totally for you, you feel you can be totally vulnerable with them. You can be absolutely giving everything to them because they're not going to abuse you. They're not going to do anything to you if they truly love you. Tragedies happen when that love is abused. But in God's eyes, that never happens. And in God's economy, it will always remain faithful. 
Tom Wright again says, when God keeps his promises, he is not rewarding us for our effort, but doing what comes naturally to his overflowing, generous nature. I love that phrase. I'll just repeat it again. When God keeps his promises, he is not rewarding us for our effort, but doing what comes naturally to his overflowing, generous nature. And so, when we think about the passages in the New Testament that celebrate that overflowing, generous nature, we remember things like in Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us in him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. It's going to be displayed to the whole world, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. That's the receiving of that grace. And this is not from yourselves. It's not your contract that you've, you've made with God. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Is that fair? It's absolutely not fair. We totally don't deserve it. But God's generosity overwhelms us. How gracious is the God who does not count our sins against us, as Jeremiah said, does not even remember them but rather he's invited us to remember the one who made a new covenant in his blood shed for us. Those who have been hired, as it were, from childhood and those only just who have received the invitation all get to share that same grace. How thankful we can be that this new covenant is on the basis of God giving everything for us. How thankful I am that my father, a year before he died, received that grace and that penny dropped and he was able to receive the amazing grace of God right at the end of his life. It is the God of the impossible that makes a covenant, not a contract, with us. So deeply unfair that even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And his generous grace knows no limit. He simply says, come, stop striving. Come and surrender. Come empty-handed and let me fill you with what truly satisfies the body of Christ, the bread of life that keeps us in eternity with him. Amen.